If you have your Bibles, please turn to Job chapter 8. Job had three friends who came to visit him after his difficulties. The first of his friends spoke, and later we will see in the book that God will hold that friend accountable for his counsel. That speech, if you will, of his first friend did not have their desired effect, so the second friend speaks up. And so the second friend, his name is Bildad. And it says, Then Bildad the Shumite, Shuhite answered, How long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a mighty wind? So he starts saying, when are you going to stop being a blowhard? You just talk, 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 and, and the wind blows, but nothing's happening. It says, does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert what is right? The answer to that question is, of course not. God does not pervert justice, and God does not do what is not right. But that's not the question. And so... He goes on to say, if your son sinned against him, then he delivered them into the power of their transgressions. Basically, he just said, it's your children's fault. They're dead. Now, I want to remind you, if you go back a few chapters to chapter three, the purpose of the three friends coming was to sympathize and comfort Job. Do you think these words sympathize and comfort Job? Their mission has failed miserably. They have taken what they, their limited theology and their limited theology is right in its limitation and have applied it in all circumstances. So they said, if something bad happens, it's got to be because your kids were bad. And there is a presumption and an assumption that Job and his children sinned and that's why there's the problems. Now, if they came to comfort and sympathize, rather than being accusatory, you would think they would say, well, what can we do to get you where you need to be? But instead, it's their effort to confront him as a sinner and see that he repents. Not taking into account what the true facts are. And so he says this, if you would seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself for you and restore your righteousness, righteous estate. Through your beginning was insignificant, yet your end will increase. He's saying, look it, you're a sinner because these bad things happen. So repent, and if you repent, God will move to you, and he'll restore you, and the blessings as if greater than you started out. And then to justify himself, verse 80 says, Please inquire of the past generations and consider the things searched out by their fathers. For we are only a, of yesterday and know nothing, because our days on earth are as a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and bring forth words from their minds? So he calls out to Job and say, Look towards tradition. 
Tradition will inform you where you've gone wrong. Now, tradition is good and tradition is bad. It depends on what the tradition is. For instance, in our country, on a particular Thursday in November, we celebrate Thanksgiving. That's a good tradition. It's a time for us to take a moment and thank God for what we have done. And most of the, the United States, instead of thanking God, thank their employer for not letting them have to work that day. But, but the tradition is good. We're supposed to be thankful to God, but not just that one day, but another, all other days as well. And it's supposed to cause us to remember to be constantly thankful. So that tradition is good. Rather than poking on your tradition, I'll pick another one. There was a young family who was going to um, have the first holiday meal and have all the relatives over. Uh, and so they were excited. And so uh, an unusual husband decided, well, I'm going to help my wife. And he's going to, he takes the ham, which is large, and puts it in a pan. He's going to put it in the oven. And his wife says, wait, wait, you can't do that. And he goes, why not? I said, you got to cut the ham off and, and cut part of it off. He goes, why? He goes, because my mom did it, and the ham was always good when she did it. And he goes, I don't think that has anything to, to do with it. She goes, but that's what we did every year, and my, my mom's hand is wonderful. And he goes, well, call your mom. See why she did it. And she calls her mom and says, Mom, you cut the ham off to make it taste better, didn't you? She goes, no, I cut it off because we didn't have a large enough pan. So there are times when we do have traditions that we don't know the reason for where they're just tradition. And so Bildad is seeking tradition when tradition is not on point. And then in verse 11 it says, can the papyrus grow up without a marsh? Can the rushes grow without water? The answer is obviously no. While it's still green and not cut down, yet it withers before any other plant. So the paths of all who forget God and the hope of the godless will perish. He's right. These things are accurate, but they're wrong applied to Job. Whose confidence is fragile and whose trust is a spider's web. He trusts in his house, but he does not stand. He holds fast to it, but it does not endure. He thrives before the sun and his shoots spread out over the garden. His roots wrap around a stock rock pile. He grasps a house of stone. If he is removed from this, his place, then it will deny him, saying, I never saw you. Behold, this is the joy of his way, and out of the dust others will spring. Lo, God will not reject a man of integrity, nor will he support the evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no longer. He's saying, look at the wicked are going to perish. They may be doing well now, like being in a marsh, but as soon as you take them out, or as soon as the water dries, they'll crumble to dust. But he goes, the righteous are not so. He's, he's accurate in, in this explanation. Psalms will say the same thing. That when we are planted by water, that a tree will grow and root it. He's accurate, but he doesn't apply it properly. He only sees his theology his way. And again, if he truly believed that Job had sinned, 
Maybe he should have a conversation with him. Well, Job, was there any time that you might have made a wrong decision? And let Job explore those things rather than being accusatory because you know what happens when someone accuses you of something. Rather than say, ah, you're right, we go, and we, we get defensive and we defend what it is that we do. So even if they were trying to get on track, their methodology is inaccurate. And so see, there's so much that the book of Job can tell us. So when we are talking to our friends and our families and others about them being sinful, because they're sinners, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we need to do so in a loving and persuasive way, not just yelling. Chapter 9. And, and one other thing. In the conversation that now his two friends have had, other than to say repent, and yet there's no understanding why, is there not a sense of, well, draw near to God. Draw near. It's just repent. It's no, no. He will reveal to you his plan, his word, his demand. But there's not, it's just, you're wrong, you do these things. Then Job answered, in truth, I know that this is so. Now, I'm agreeing with you that those who are wicked will perish like a spider's web. Those who are righteous will, will prosper. So I agree with you. I understand the theology. But how can a man be right before God? gets right to the crux. How can anyone, or if we have all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, how can anyone stand in rightness before God? If one wished to dispute him, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. Wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has defied him without harm? He's going, wait a minute, how can I approach God without him, in essence, crushing me. I can't compel God in any way because he is almighty and I'm just a man. Wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has defied him without harm? It is God who removes the mountains. They know not how. When he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble? Who commands the sun not to shine and sets a seal upon the stars? Who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea? Who makes the bear, Orion, and Pleiades, and the chambers of the south? Who does great things, unfathomable and wondrous works without number? He's saying, God is God. God is awesome. God performs miracles. God not only performs miracles here on earth by moving mountains and seas, he also does things in the universe. I'm just a man. How do I deal with God in these situations? Were he to pass by me, I would not see him. Were he to move past me, I would not perceive him. Were he to snatch away, who could restrain him? Who could say to him, what are you doing? So he's saying, here's the situation. God is God. And God can move and act in any way God chooses to, and he can do so 
by passing by me and I'd never even know. So Job has a fairly good understanding of who God is. God will not turn back his anger beneath him, crouches the helpers of Rahab. Now this, when you think of Rahab, you think of the prostitute. No, this this is a, a bunch of demons from the sea uh, concept. And so he says, the helper, how then can I answer him and choose my word before him? For though I were right, I could not answer. And I would have to implore the mercy of my judge. Job understands what a lot of people who don't know God fail to understand. Job says, even though I, even if I'm right, how do I talk to God? Because he's so awesome and I ain't. But the typical atheist or agnostic will say, well, when I'm in front of God, I'll tell him that I'm, I've had more good things done than bad things done, and I deserve to be him. Job is arguing that he's blameless, that he's righteous, and even he understands he could not present himself, even if he's right, before God. And let me give you a clue for those who say, if I, I can just stand before God and tell you how great I am and, and my goodness outweighed my words will fail you in the presence of an almighty God. So Job understands this. How then can I answer him? How choose and choose my words before him? For though I were right, I could not answer it, and I have to implore the mercy of my judge. If I called and he answered me, I could not believe that he would listen to my voice. For he bruises me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to get my breath, but saturates me with bitterness. It is a matter of power. Behold, he is the strong one. And if it is a matter of justice, who can summons him? Though I am righteous, my mouth will condemn me. Though I am guiltless, he will declare me guilty. I am guiltless. I do not take notice of myself. I despise my life. It is all one. Therefore, I say he destroys the guiltless and the wicked. And the scourge kills suddenly. He mocks the despair of the innocent. And the earth is given to the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. It is not he. Then who is it? This is where Job really gets off track. He understands who God is. But he's saying, you're telling me that I've sinned, but I haven't. So if God's doing these things, and he's thinking God's doing these things, then God, in essence, is unjust because I don't deserve this. But I don't have the power to rebuke him. I can't compel him in a courtroom to answer to his wrongness to me. Job is so wrong here. But I want you to understand something. Job is hurting, and the pain is immense, both the emotional and the physical pain, the psychological pain. And sometimes pain causes us to have a distorted view. Job is thinking, God is punishing me because of something he thinks that I've done wrong, and I'm blameless. Now, if we go back to the beginning of Job, the writer of the book of Job says, Job is 
blameless. And God himself says Job is blameless. So God's not doing these things to punish Job. But because of his feelings, he thinks God is doing these things to him, and he thinks it's unjust. Now, I'm not saying that Job is not entitled to his feelings, but his feelings are wrong. Because what's happening is, God said to Satan, have you considered Job? And he goes, the only reason you bless him is because you've, given, you've blessed him, and he will curse you if you don't. And he says, go ahead. And then he says, well, the only reason he hasn't cursed you yet is because you haven't taken away his health. And God said, go ahead. And he does. And yet Job doesn't curse God. Even his wife tells him, well, just curse God and die. His two friends now have said, you're at fault. You ought to repent. There's something wrong with you. But there is a situation I can't say, well, I would be a saint in this situation. Pain affects you. I, I get it. But instead of Job complaining to God, you know what he should be doing? Singing victory in Jesus. Why? Because the whole point of this pain is that if he was in pain, he would curse God, and he hasn't. Therefore, he's victorious. God knew exactly who Job was and what his limitations were, and God is correct, and Job is a righteous man. He's blameless. God is not punishing Job. God is demonstrating to the world that even when bad things happen to good people, you still can praise God because he's worthy of it. The scriptures teach us that good things and bad things happen to righteous and unrighteous people. The scriptures also teach us from Jesus' own teaching that sometimes things happen so that the glory of God might be manifested. That's what's happening here. The glory of God is being manifested, but Job is so internalized in his pain, he's thinking, God has wronged me. No, God hasn't wronged him. God is not unjust. He's simply suffering for righteousness. Now my days are swifter than a runner, and they flee, and they are no good. They slip by like reed boats. They're like an eagle who swoops on its prey. Though I say I will forget my complaint, I will leave off my sad countenance and be cheerful. I am afraid of all my pains, and I know that I will not acquit me. I am accounted wicked. Why then should I toil in vain? If I should wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, Yet would you plunge me into the pit, and my own clothes would abhor me. For he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, that he may go to court together. There is no umpire between us who may lay his hands upon us both. Let him remove his rod from me, and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him, but I am not like that in myself. He's going, if I could just complain to God and God would hear me, it would all be made right. But God does hear me. He's saying, the problem is I'm feeling that God is un unfair and unjust and I need somebody to umpire between us to 
make sure that God hears my side. Now, I want you to hold your uh, finger or whatever at Job chapter 10, and I want you to skip over to 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, my little children, I'm writing to you these things. I'm sorry, I'm writing to these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation of our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. God has not only given us an umpire, he has given us an advocate. He has given us one who will present our claims to God. Someone said, and, and it's, it's accurate, Jesus is the greatest attorney that ever lived. He never lost a single case and never defended an innocent man. God has given us Jesus, his son, as our advocate, the one who will be there to advocate for us because Job understands that if I were to stand before God and even though I consider myself righteous and blameless, I can't talk before an almighty God. And therefore, God, knowing that, has given Jesus as our advocate, someone who can put our petitions before God, who can say, yeah, I understand Joe has feet of clay. I understand that he's been faithful to you several times. But my blood has covered that sin. He's mine. He's righteous. He's just because of my blood. He is my propitiation. And so the complaint that Job gives, God has already ameliorated. So now... Job in chapter 10 is going to go on, if I, you will, a pity party. I loathe my own life. I will give full vent to my complaint. He's not, I'm just going to throw it all out. I'm going to throw up and regurgitate my feelings. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend with me. Because he's not. God is not contending with you. He's contending with Satan. Is it right for you indeed to oppress, to reject the labors of your hand, and to look favorably on the schemes of the wicked? No, but God hasn't done that. Again, because of Job's pain, he is blinded to who God is. Have you eyes of flesh, or do you see as a man sees? Are your days as the days of a mortal, or your years as a man's years, that you should seek for my guilt and search after my sin? According to your knowledge, I am indeed not guilty, yet there is no deliverance from your hand. He doesn't understand why he's in this predicament. Your hands fashioned and made me altogether, and would you destroy me? He's going, wait a minute, I understand that you're my creator. So what was the point of making me? You're going to destroy me. 
I don't understand. Remember now that you have made me as clay, and would you turn me into dust again? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese, clothe me with skin and flesh, and knit me together with bone and sinew? You have granted me life and loving kindness, and your care has preserved my spirit. Yet, these things you have concealed in your heart, I know that this is within you. If I sin, then you would take note of me and would not acquit me of my guilt. If I am wicked, woe to me. And if I am righteous, I dare not lift my head. I am sated with disgrace and conscious of my misery. Should my head be lifted up, you would hunt me like a lion. And again, you would show me your power against me. You renew your witnesses against me and increase your anger toward me. Hardship after hardship is with me. He is so bitter at God. He's saying, I can't even lift my head because if I do, you'll knock it down again. That's, that's how he doesn't understand God. Because again, pain and suffering will cause you to not know what's accurate. Why then have you brought me out of the womb? Would that I had died and no eye had seen me. Now he's back to that. I just wish I were dead. I should have been as though I had not been carried from womb to tomb. Would he not let my few days alone withdraw from me that, that I may have a little cheer? Before I go, and I shall not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow, the land of utter gloom as darkness itself, or deep shadow without order, and which signs as the darkness. When I started the series, one of the advices that I gave was that do not exchange what you don't know about God for what you do know. We just read a passage before the service started, and we sang about how his love lifted us. God loves you. God so loved you that he sent his only begotten son for you, that you might have eternal life, that you may have it abundantly. God loves you. So when things happen that seem to dissuade that, you need to know that God loves you. And you may not understand why you're in pain. You may not understand why people don't like you. And you may not understand why circumstances are the way circumstances are. You don't trade what you don't know about what you do know. If we know that God loves us, then what's happening to Job is not because God hates him. There's another reason. And like I said, instead of Job saying, why me, oh God? He ought to be saying, thank God that he had enough faith in me that no matter what comes my way, I will never curse him but praise him. Now he knows something about God. He knows that he's all powerful and he knows he's almighty and he knows he's transcendent and he knows all of these things, but he doesn't understand the true justice of God. So my second bit of advice that I gave partway through it is not only are we not to exchange what we don't know about God for what we do know, get to know him better now. Because 
I can guarantee you, even though you've suffered with tragedy and difficulties, you're living in a world that that's going to be the last time. Someone that you love is going to die. You are going to probably be given some type of diagnosis that says you've got some terrible disease and your, your days are numbered. A few just drop dead. You, you never know. But the family is all of a sudden having to deal with that suddenness of loss. Tragedy and death happen in this world. But the, know we, the more we know about God, the more we can still say, it is well with my soul. So yes, I can understand Job's pain and suffering and his crying out to God. And you know, God is big enough to allow you to cry out to him. You see, Job is wrong here. But we don't see God crushing him for his impetuousness. How dare you say that I'm these things and squish you like a bug. God deals in his understanding of what's happening to Job. As the scripture says, the Lord knows that we are but dust. He understands that we are who we are. That's why he sent his spirit to dwell within us. That we might have that pledge and that hope that this is not all that there is. You see, Job's pain is so much. All he wants to do is die and hope that that's it. Because in death, at least he doesn't have to deal with God. By us, he's given us the hope that no matter what happens here, when we die, we get to be with him. And that's far more awesome than being the most blessed person on earth. So we need to learn from Job's life that there is a proper response to circumstances and there's an improper response to circumstances. Like I said, Job is blameless, still blameless. He's not cursed God. But he's questioned God. And he's shown that God seems to be arbitrary. And our God is. Our God is merciful and faithful and loving. And he will yet deal with Job in a loving and merciful way. And sometimes in our lives we wonder, why have not circumstances changed? I've been praying and praying, and praying, and yet the circumstance remains. That's where the scripture says, wait upon the Lord, and he will renew your strength. Notice that he said, wait upon the Lord, and he'll fix it. He said he'll renew your strength so that you can deal with the circumstance. And if, praise God, he changes the circumstance, rejoice. And if he doesn't change the circumstance, you say, you know, God, Thank you for giving me the strength to continue to worship you in this terrible circumstance. I'm, I'm sad to, to admit that 
Oftentimes, Satan is right. He was just wrong about Job. Many people will praise God because he blesses. Not so much when he doesn't. We need to set our feet upon the rock and to say, no matter what, come what may, I will praise you. Even when my heart's hurting, even when I don't understand and I don't get it and, and I'm confused and my pain is so gripping that I just don't understand, I will still say, I will trust you. I will praise you because you're worthy. And I can trust you that even in this tragedy that I don't understand, that I'm hurting, that you will take it and somehow, some way, turn it into good because I love you. I've been called according to your purpose. So Lord, I acknowledge that you have already given me the victory. Death will not defeat me. Not even pain or consequences. So Lord, in the world, come what may. Sometimes sorrow, sometimes pain is what I need. Don't want it, don't like it. But maybe it's what I need. But even in those circumstances, it's okay, God. Because I know you have me in the hollow of your hand. And nothing can ever happen to me for eternity because of you and your love. And all God's people said.